Coming up on the Men at the Movies podcast, we discuss episode five from the Band of Brothers series, Crossroads. While the battle scenes are great and exciting, what happens when Winters gets promoted away from the men he's been with for years? He finds himself stuck behind a desk in some lonely house, typing reports and completing inventories. But he endures the tedium and suffering with excellence and honor, and through that experience becomes the leader Easy Company will need as they head off to Bastogne. Join me as we discover God's truth in this story. The movies and stories we love are gateways to see ourselves and God in new ways. Every great story borrows its power from a larger story, the story that's written on our hearts and woven into the fabric of our very being. podcast. My name is Paul McDonald and joining me for this fifth episode in this Band of Brothers series is a man who I consider one of my band of brothers, Whaler. How are you? Welcome back. How are you doing, sir? I am enjoying this promotion so much <laughs> and we went from job interview to probationary arrangement and now I'm in the easy company. This That's is right. looking pretty nice. <laughs> you know, as much as you know, guys separated by a few hundred miles can be. Uh, we we were able to spend some time together recently, and uh, it was just uh, you talk about easy company, and you are easy company. Uh, just sitting there, and you know, the, there's a lot of people that you can't be silent with, and just sitting you sitting with you and in silence is restful and restorative. So, uh, yes, you are definitely easy company. Uh, thank you, man. <laughs> Well, I have to ask, you know, as soon as you give me an accolade like that, have you ever had to make a retraction with the men at the movies broadcasting? It depends on what you de- de- how you define retraction. Uh, sometimes we mm-hmm. will misquote people and uh, we will correct that on our website <laughs> in the in the okay. show notes of saying, oh, we said this. This is what we actually this is the actual quote. This is the actual person that said it. But no, we and we frequently uh, Sarah Daniels, who's a frequent guest on the podcast, is my fact checker behind the scenes. She will she will let me know where I misspoke. Well, I definitely said something flat erroneous in the very first episode we did together on The Martian, where you recalled that we had met in October, <laughs> and uh, or no, you said March. You said March, and I was like, mm, actually, it was October, and and. You were right. I was so very wrong. I created six months that didn't exist, and I just have to go on the record and own it. That's right. Own it in full. I'm sorry. And see, that's a mark of a good leader. You own your your mistakes. You own your, your the errors, and uh, you move on. Right. <laughs> well, that's the only reason I did it. I'm I'm very proud of my humility. <laughs> just like Moses, he wrote that he was the proud, the most humble man on earth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the only reason he could write that is because, you know, I hadn't been born yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that that story about the church who who gives the guy, hey, our 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 elders, our deacons met, and we voted that you are the most humble man in church. We want to give you this award. The next Sunday he shows up wearing it, and they're like, We have to take it back now. 
<laughs> Obviously, we were you know, wrong. Funny. <laughs> uh, there is something to that, though. I mean, we we definitely didn't pregame any of this this part of the dialogue, but uh, it's one of the things I learned from Willard when when Yeshua says, "I am humble." It's a thing that he's allowed to know about himself. You know, he says that in public hearing, he's teaching his students what it means to be humble. And you can know whether you are humble or not. If we're emulating Jesus, there's going to be a day where we do or don't know that about ourselves. And that's that's permitted within our character formation. So I like to joke about the humility thing. But at the bottom of it, I think there's this this strange aversion in Christian culture. Like we all know we're supposed to be humble. Right. But don't think about it or talk it too much because like, you know, that that award, if you wear that award, you're going to ruin it. It's like, mm. I mean, it's just, you know, within your gift sets, you have to know yourself if you're going to be competent and in formation, in our time with the Lord, it's okay. It's okay to know if you're humble. Probably should not be an idiot and how that, how often that comes I'm up. I'm so humble. But, uh, it's amazing how humble yeah. I am. <laughs> you guys don't even know. <laughs> But I it, I think back to just how we even opened this and I was saying how easy it was you were to, to hang out with. Like, that's not a prideful thing to accept that. It's like, yeah, that that's who I am. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and <laughs> to appreciate who you are, it's, I'm not sure where we're going with this, but, but this whole idea of humility in, you know, we see this, this, in this episode, Crossroads, it's all about Captain Winners. Now he has been become a captain. Or I misspoke earlier in an episode where I said he was Captain Winners, but he was not yet Captain Winners mm. at that point. And so, Whaler, when I invited you into this series, I invited a, a lot of guys to say, hey, would you would you like to participate? And this was one of the, your top picks you picked, you said, I'll do either five or six. And I had a guy who signed up for six already. So I was like, go to five. But what is it that you were like, when I said, okay, you can pick any of the 10. Why did you want to pick this one? Why did you want to talk about this episode in particular? Cinematically, there's quite a lot that just is, oh my gosh, it's so full of manful exhilaration. You know, these several skirmishes that we see happening throughout the episode and winners is just just tactical, just immediately coming up with these schemes that are really sound and the dudes get it and they execute it. They do strategic strategic withdrawal with great acumen, Uh, man. The one scene anytime I've ever talked to anybody, if you know, you have the band of brothers conversation with the dude, it's like part of the the curriculum of your relationship. At some point you have to acknowledge band of brothers oh yeah and then 20 minute conversation at least at least anytime i've ever had that at least at least it, it, it's going to be months you know <laughs> it's like they the thing going around now about all guys are waiting to talk about the roman empire uh, i actually haven't had much of that experience no. but there's a lot of waiting to talk about band of brothers oh yeah in those relationships so the scene and we're like way ahead in the episode at this point but you know he realizes that they're uh, pinched between two companies. They can't just retreat because they're going to either walk into soldiers or they're going to get snuck up by some soldiers. They're flanked. And so he's planning the, we just have to attack. They don't know we're here yet, but they're going to figure it out soon. And winners just chunks that smoke grenade. He's like, go on the smoke. 
and the thing is faulty some kind of way. It doesn't smoke. And so it's Winters just dashing by himself across that field, you know? Well, there's a time delay in it. So before the smoke actually pops, and Winters knows that, he, like, he does that purposefully. Oh, you think that was intentional? Yeah, I think that was intentional because he's like, I need to go, I can't, he, he was a leader from the front. And so he intentionally threw it and started running because he wasn't waiting for the signal. But I thought it, his troops were so well-trained and so sort of obedient that they're like, no, that's not the signal. He said, go on smoke. He's the leader. He's going ahead. I <laughs> want to look into that. We're, we're going to need Sarah. We need some fact checking here. <laughs> We want to know about the delayed fuse on smoke grenades from World War II. Because <laughs> it, it looked to me like something was faulty with it, like it was supposed to smoke right away. I'm with you on Winters was supposed to be at the front, but I can't see him as a sound tactician being that far removed. Like from the three rest seconds of the in front? At least. Because the thing sits and then it's just sort of like, and then the guys are just looking at each other. Like their their reactions seem to communicate smoke should have been happening by now. And so you see the dudes get ready to run. It's like, no, no, no. He said, wait for the smoke. And so it's like, Gah. it seems like a, yeah. a panic sort of reaction. Like, well, I think was it was because he was running. Like, like they would, they would expect him to also wait for the smoke, but he wasn't, he was just going. I, man, I must know because winters knowing that or not knowing that, that, that is the whole dimension like that's a golly, there's several axes there. Yeah. I actually don't care which one of us is right now because they're all enthralling. <laughs> and however long it is, that run across like See, Ivan Ivan wrote down I've an ever, idea from that scene of he felt as a good leader, I don't know what's over that hill, so I want to uh, see it first. By a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> by a lot. Took them by total surprise. Oh, man. Yeah. And then he's haunted by it later. Mm. You know, we see that scene continue yeah. to come up throughout the rest of the series. But any fellow I've ever talked to about that episode, every man's heart thumps with, you know, we, we want that field to dash across. We want to be the guy having that opportunity to display that kind of courage, just all out sprint, ready to throw down. It, it resonates with every fiber mm. of the masculine heart. And that's interesting that that's the framework because I love what, because I know sort of where we're going with this and it is not in this direction because yeah. there's a lot in those battle scenes where we see Captain Winters as the easy company commander of what a great leader he is. You know, I, I've got a list, mm -hmm. like 15 things that he does that make the reason why he's a great leader. Mm-hmm. But then something happens as a result. <laughs> and it happens to us, right? We, we are successful. We win in one area. We, are su we succeed. We achieve. Whatever you want to say. And it's interesting even going back to that idea of humility. Of he's sitting there in the aftermath of that battle. And he gets a promotion. He gets to be the the uh, battalion S3. And the S3 is the organizational guy. He's responsible for training, for the logistics, 
for the org, which we see in the first clip we're going to play here. You see, and this is, like you said, one of the more, it's one of the, I enjoyed it, most enjoyable ones to watch because it starts halfway into the story. You know, the, him running across the field, seeing the German soldier and shooting him. And then it goes, and you're not even sure if it's going back in time or forward in time. Mm-hmm. But this is a forward in time. He is the S3. And they're, they're going to see the general there in the command center. And where his old role would have been preparing for battle and this rescue of the British paratroopers who are on the other side of the river after the disaster of Market Garden, we see him in an entirely, with an entirely new role and new duties. Nixon, Heiliger. Meet Colonel Dovey, British First Airborne. Captain Nixon is our second battalion, has two. That's first Lieutenant Moose Heiliger. Just the British lost 8,000 men when Market Garden fell on its ass, which is why. Colonel Dovey has been tasked with coordinating some kind of rescue operation for the Red Devils who were trapped when Arnhem fell. Dutch resistance are harboring 140 of my chaps here, just outside of Jerry Hell Town, 15 miles north of the river. They'll make their way to the riverbank and assemble in the woods here tonight. We could see him from Easy Company and get them back across the Rhine as fast as possible. 140 men? Canadian engineers have supplied six boats. The rendezvous point is isolated and landable. I swam it myself last night. At approximately 0030 hours, they will signal the V for victory with a handheld red torch. That would be a handheld red flashlight. All right, we call this thing Operation Pegasus. Bob, your second battalion is on the spot. Get it done. Captain Nixon, this is Colonel Dolby in every way possible. If you need anything at all, you come to me. I can hardly ask for more. Captain Myers. Sir, I haven't seen your endorsement on the Market Garden after action approval. Or the updated battalion TO and E. Why is that? I have them at CP-1300, sir. And I want an inventory and whatever material the British 43rd left behind. Rations, medical supplies, transport. An inventory, yes, sir. Dick. Sir. Still wager right citations on that 5 October operation. I need your report. The report, yes, sir. It's fire just interesting because sir. you see him as they're going over that mission. Winners is in the background. <laughs> eager to jump into the fray. Eager to be a part of the battle planning. You know, and, and later in the episode as he's going over with the new company commander, hey, you need to do this. Hey, make sure this. He has to be reminded they're in good hands. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that whole that whole idea of letting go. But what shifts for Winters that makes this episode so interesting to you, Whaler, as he goes from sort of the battlefield commander, which, as you said, that makes our hearts come alive. Yes, I want to do that. And now he's in doing inventory and reports and citations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cinematically, it's the battle stuff that resonates with the more you know visceral components of being a man. And then this this dimension of it, it appeals to me in the ways that I know it's it's calling us to a right orientation to duty. And at the same time, I I don't enjoy it. I don't like seeing Winters being removed from the men, removed from the places where he's demonstrated so much savviness. Mm-hmm. And it, it might not even be right. You know, if we're talking historically, organizationally, it might not have been proper for Winters to have been put in that XO role. 
Not to say that he didn't deserve promotion, but it kind of looks like wonkiness in the arrangement of the army. And, you know, buddies that I've had in the army, they all have a sentiment of like they love the army and they hate the army. Oh, you know, there's there's ambivalence in their experience of the army. And a lot of that hierarchical stuff, you have to have hierarchy, but this was the position that was available. This is what uh, Colonel Dyke needed him to satisfy. And so not Dyke. Sykes. Um, Sykes. Thank you. Yeah. We'll talk so about like Lieutenant he, he Dyke later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Dyke is not a Sykes. That's a big Sykes. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, this was the hollow place that was available as as much of a, a pain as Sobel was, I think Sobel would have been the ideal exo because he wanted the recognition. So on a selfish level, he would have been really prompt with reports when it comes to doing inventory. He is the guy that was perfectly situated with all of his cantankerousness to bust everybody's chops about where things are and how much do you have and get to me in two hours. You know, Sobel would have killed at that job. And it had him appropriately removed from the men if he was in a position like that. And so there's a tragedy where we see Winters doing tedium mm. and not inspiring men's hearts with courage by his example. You know, he's locked away in a room by himself. And it's it's so ugly for him personally, because not only is he not in the, you know, in the field with the guys or even just like in the hangout places with the guys, he doesn't even get to be in the battalion CP with the other leaders. He's in this really ugly halfway house by himself where his job is being measured by paper. Right. And yet he's doing his duty regardless, as well as he can, taking all of it seriously. Nixon even gives him grief. He's like, hey, you short words, you know. Don't have to be a novel, if dick. Winners, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. If Winners is going to write the report, it's going to be the best report mm. ever written. And when he's done with it, you could chisel this thing in granite, you know, it's. He's not going to do any of it halfway, yeah. even when it seems like it's minutia. Because it's sort of easy to be excited about going into battle and engaging into battle, being there with the guys, doing that stuff. But there's a part of our initiation where, not that we're promoted beyond our capability or whatever, but in order to become who we're meant to be, we have to go through that period of tedium, monotony, in a lot of ways, loneliness. Mm -hmm. And the community is there. His band of brothers is there. Easy Company is present and available in a lot of ways. But hes they're moving on to a different mission, and his mission has shifted. As he becomes more and more the type of man who can take care of the men entrusted to his care. You know, he has been, he was sort of like the, the parable of the talents. He did well with a company. He started with mm -hmm. a platoon. Then he became company commander. Now he's a battalion level in the, the command post or the command structure. But what he's doing is not his sweet spot. And yet he's doing that with integrity, mm -hmm. with, uh, conscientiousness and he may not he may feel an ache to be separated from what he really loves to do but he's doing it well mm -hmm. so i think that's sort of the question that we wanted to to play around with a little bit that idea of 
how do we suffer well, especially when there is a sense of loneliness? Mm -hmm. I was on the phone with my son last night and he had an issue over the weekend and he calls me and he's, he's going through some stuff and he felt abandoned, uh, sort of betrayed by his friends. And in that moment, I don't have my band of brothers there to guide me. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know what the right response is. How do I care for his heart and hold him accountable for his incorrect actions? How do I, how do I navigate that? And, and because I was alone, there's nobody around. Mm -hmm. It's a very in the moment thing. So there are things you know, we, we can look at this, you know, the series is called Band of Brothers. But there's stuff that we have to go through where we have to actually, to in order to grow, we have to go through it in isolation. Yeah, not favorite, but very much <laughs> size of life. Just like uh, Winters did not like typing. Typing was not his favorite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Good on you for showing up for your son. Of course, I want to respect the the uh, the insulation there. Do you feel like you guys had a good synapse with each other for that time? It's hard to tell, you know, because he was he was very emotional, and you know, I don't know if what I say is like, is this the right time? I've been known for to say the right thing at the wrong time. They're like, oh, they're not ready to hear that right now. It's they're too close to the painful moment. And so just wondering, did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? Did I handle my son's heart well? In a lot of ways, it's something that we have to go back and it's like, I have to that idea of letting go, right? I have to let go of the reaction, the response, and trust God to catch his heart. Just like winners has to trust Moose with his company. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. And that's that's a heartening thought that there are many instances where we feel absolutely alone. And yet in the telos of all things, that's never fundamentally true. Mm. It's like in our in our experience, yes, and that I think that's even built into the human the human experience. I mean, God bless the, the master more than anybody else was intimate with the father's heart imbued all the way with God's love. I mean, absolutely permeated with the fullness of the Holy spirit. And yet in his worst moment, he's on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on that passage. <laughs> that well no he wasn't or that he felt like he was right his his felt experience his phenomenological awareness was being alone and feeling abandoned by the one person <laughs> that had always been nothing but present to him right and I, I love the way that chesterton wrote about that it's one of my absolute favorite passages ever and was actually the thing that was instrumental in pulling me out of my own dark night of the soul years ago. This is from Orthodoxy. He says, 
That a good man may have his back to the wall is no more than we knew already. But that God could have his back to the wall is a boast for all insurgents forever. Christianity is the only religion on earth that has felt that omnipotence made God incomplete. Christianity alone felt that God, to be holy God, must have been a rebel as well as a king. Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. For the only courage worth calling courage must necessarily mean that the soul passes a breaking point and does not break. In this, indeed, I approach a matter more dark and awful than it is easy to discuss. And I apologize in advance if any of my phrases fall wrong or seem irreverent, touching a matter which the greatest saints and thinkers have justly feared to approach. But in the terrific tale of the Passion, there is a distinct emotional suggestion that the author of all things, in some unthinkable way, went not only through agony, but through doubt. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. No, but the Lord thy God may tempt himself. And it seems as if this is what happened in Gethsemane. In a garden, Satan tempted man. And in a garden, God tempted God. He passed in some superhuman manner through our human horror of pessimism. When the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion, but at the cry from the cross, the cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God. And now let the revolutionists choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. Nay, the matter grows too difficult for human speech, but let the atheists themselves choose a God. They will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. So why did that section mean so much to you? I spent some years where I never doubted that God was real, but I had a whole lot of doubt that he was good. I, I couldn't square with the universe coming into existence by accident. That that has always seemed a foolish proposition. But that God were good, there was a lot of evidence to the contrary. And I know we've got piles of books and miles of lives dealing with the problem of pain. There was a single idea about the darkness of our fractured universe that I just couldn't contend with. I, it was literally one morning. You know, my wife and I had a few kids at the time. And there was one day where I woke up and realized that there's no insurance policy I could ever take out to guarantee that my kids would be absolutely protected from abuse, you know, from molestation. And realizing that that was the world that I lived in just made me hate God, that that arrangement was even possible. And I contend with that for a long time. So three years in the dark, very dark. Um, everything was good between me and Adina. You know, we, I, I was faithful to her. If you're going to misbehave, the dark night of the soul is a good time to misbehave. Our, our relationship was still good. Of course, she didn't like that struggle. It did make for some friction, but we, we remained together. Uh, I was present to the kids, you know, kept up with work, but the, the undercurrent was just a lot of resentment 
toward God and that colors everything else. Mm. And then somewhere around the three-year mark, just got exhausted by being angry all the time, had to even that out. So then there was about four years in the gray where I didn't really find any resolution, but I was just managing things better. And so it was a full seven years of looking and a lot, a lot of reading, a lot of talk with friends. And then most people get exhausted themselves. You know, they don't know how to stay present in that kind of a struggle. And then there's one pal. We, we went out to dinner together, just hanging out and revisited that topic. And he, he brought that, that, that quote out and it just brought a lot of clarity to he suffered this himself. If the master could have that level of doubt and if it's not too much to say, even disbelief and could remain faithful, even in that experience, that just became such a hope giving frame of reference where it didn't fix the problem. I still contend with the universe where pedophilia is even thinkable, but if we have the most pure soul who ever lived and the, the person least worthy of that kind of punishment and part of his human experience was asking God, where the hell are you? And he was faithful anyway. It just, it brought some steel. It brought some metal back to the steel, you know, it brought some warmth back to the fire. Uh, okay. If, if he did that, maybe I can do that too. And it, it absolved a lot of the guilt of the experience. Like, I'm not supposed to feel this way. Right. You know, you grow up hearing about faith like a solid rock and all that. It's like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have any resentment for the people that that works for, but that's just never been my walk around experience. You know, I, I oftentimes feel a lot more like Jacob wrestling in the dark, refusing to let go, demanding a blessing. And there is a faithfulness in that because he's not letting go. Right. And so it just gave me, it gave me another set of handlebars in the, in the fight of not letting go. It's really interesting that you, you brought all that up. First that like our, our pastors recently preached on Jacob wrestling and that mm -hmm. like the whole idea that Jacob walked out of that with his new identity, but also with a limp. And then I was recently reading in Hebrews and I'm reading in the message devotional Bible. So it has these little blurbs from Eugene Peterson interspersed throughout. And it's talking about uh, salvation is one of the central themes of, of Hebrews 2. And it says, salvation marks God's action in Jesus Christ, whereby we're accepted just the way we are, and by which we're in the process of being made whole, repaired of the ravages of sin, and restored to our original splendor. And then when I you actually look at the actual the verses in in chapter two here, it says it makes good sense that God who got everything started and keeps everything going now completes the work by making the salvation pioneer perfect through suffering. And by salvation pioneer, he's talking about Jesus. <laughs> but that idea, like Jesus had to suffer. But what was his suffering? We think of his suffering on the cross, but it was much more than that. I mean, his his humiliation started well before the cross. And as you were talking about the the idea of of 
of his struggle and his temptation in the garden, the temptation was to call down the angel armies and save himself from going through that death, from going through that carrying the weight of humanity's sin. Mm -hmm. He could have chosen not to do that, but he chose to, right? He chose the tedium. He, I mean, tedium is kind of a light word for what he endured, but he chose that. He could have chosen mm -hmm. battle, but that wouldn't have brought restoration. And, mm -hmm. and not to equate winters here with Jesus, but if Jesus had to suffer by choosing tedium, by choosing stuff, why do we think like Jesus had to be made perfect through suffering? Why do we think we're going to be any different? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not that we want it, not yeah. that we desire it, but in order for Winters to become the leader that he was meant to be leading his men up to Eagle's Nest, as we'll talk about much later in the series. He had to go through this. Yeah. Well, and, and there is, there is a, a measure of suffering in that experience. Uh, tedium, you know, living, living without acclaim or even acknowledgement for your contributions. I mean, <laughs> it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible that any of those men in Easy, Easy Company were ever thinking, you know, it's all worth it because one day there's going to be an HBO special made about <laughs> us. <laughs> and then everybody will know. <laughs> I mean, God bless. From boot camp with Sobel to now we're talking about winners in his isolated pockets. And then they're in Bastogne, which was just a hell of an experience. They, they endured so much. And at every point, it was it was mm. simply because this was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do, and that alone justified it. I really like that you just brought up Bastone, because that is this is when you know Market Garden was when they endured their first big defeat. Mm. But this is where the series shifts, heading to Bastone, and the breaking point, and in order to understand so I'm going to skip to the end in order to really understand what it takes to lead Winters had to go through this where he wasn't really leading hmm. he was typing we want to be leading we want to be in the battle we want to be engaged we want to be we want to do something we don't want to be typing in a little house by ourselves but what it does at the end of the, the episode here is they get, they're sitting there. I, I can't remember exactly the, the setting at this point, but they get command the, because this is the start of the Battle of the Bulge. And they get the orders have come down. Hey, we got to move out and we're moving out tonight. And he had just, Winters had just gotten back from Paris because his friends was like, dude, you need a break. There was all these other leaders off somewhere else. The CEO, their, their company commander, is at a wedding in England. 
And so I think in a lot of ways, Winters uh, sort of assumes that company commander role as he's sort of organizing as the last leader around, the last leader available. But from his experience as the S3, the organizational planner, he now has a different perspective on what it means to go to battle. Lieutenant Peacock, Lieutenant Cotton, Captain Winters. Oh, Lieutenant Dyke, I've been looking for you. Sir, we have a problem. Colonel Strayer has not yet returned from some wedding that he's attending in London. Can you believe that? We're going to the front. We're going to the front here, and our CO isn't even in the same damn country. You have a bigger problem, Lieutenant Dyke. You have men returning to action without proper cold weather clothing and not enough ammo. Sir? I suggest you take your canvas of the entire base. Get what materials you have before you roll out. Or have you done that already? No, sir. K rations, as many as you can scrounge. We don't know if we'll be resupplied or not. Yes, sir. What about ammo? There is no more ammo. Distribute it amongst the men as best you can, so at least everybody has something. Yes, sir. All right, Lieutenant Cotton, Lieutenant Peacock, inform Lieutenant James of the situation. Get all your platoons as best equipped as you can, and then report back Winters, here to me. Understood? If he sir. had remained as a company commander, he would have sort of been in the other, the same situation of sort of focusing on the tactical aspects of what he was about to go into. But because of his intimate knowledge of the organizational structure and the needs of the battalion, mm. he understood what horrors they were about to face. Mm. Yeah, he had done the boring stuff. He had fulfilled his assignments of inventory and closer to the intel he knew they were coming coming into so it wasn't the kind of tactical we had seen him 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 execute before this was a new kind of logistical knowing the materials the supplies i mean to go into a winter setting and to have none of the winter gear so it did it added another dimension of his efficacy as a leader i don't know that this was necessarily the dark night of the soul for them mm-hmm um, I, I think Bastone and the breaking point, I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of in the name, the breaking point, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we'll be discussing here in a couple of weeks. But what you see, the, the tedium, the loneliness, the suffering has a purpose. And that was something I actually prayed with, with my son last night was, uh, don't waste his pain. Mm-hmm. And that concept of we will suffer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus said it. The writer of Hebrews said it. Peter said it. James said it. Pretty much everybody said it in the New Testament. We're going to suffer. But we want to suffer well. As you mentioned, you can be angry at God. You can be hurt by God. You can be disappointed by God. Jesus disappointed lots of people. There's a, an early in Mark, he says, the crowd showed up for him to heal them. And he told his disciples, let's leave and go to the next city. Mary and Martha were pretty disappointed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's okay. And we talk about the Psalms a lot here on the podcast because David wrestled with it. and But that's the thing, you wrestle with it. Hmm. Like you mentioned, Jacob wrestled. When we're in those tedium moments, the moments where we feel like we're not in the battle, where we're like, what is my purpose? 
where we're feeling alone and isolated. There is deep work that's going on if we're open to it. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and it's interesting how well they they paced and framed the whole episode because we keep juxtaposing between boring stuff that Winters is stuck with and then exciting things from either before or he's not a part of. And so you get this, uh, it's almost a fractured experience. And they it seems like they deliberately confuse the timestamps so that you don't really have a yeah. sense of when things happened until you get to the end. And so within the boring stuff, there's also, we see a lot of Winner's angst. You know, it's not just his personal, this isn't the life he wanted. This isn't the kind of participation in war that he wanted, but the war itself, this is when we see it really getting to him. And it seems like he contends with it well, but it's difficult. See, he keeps getting haunted by that image of that one lone German soldier that he shoots mm -hmm. first. And every time they zoom in on his face more through the episode, he looks more and more like a teenager. And it looks like guilt that Winters is carrying, taking that life and presumably several others. He carries so much guilt when he loses his own men. And it it's such a human representation of just war theory. It's to describe it clinically, well, if they do this, then we do that. That's justified. Uh, I heard a, a chaplain, an army chaplain phrase at one time. He said, just war theory. As Christians, we know that we're supposed to love our enemy and we're supposed to love our neighbor. But what do you do when your enemy attacks your neighbor? That tension is where we say, like, yeah. yeah, sometimes we still fight. You know, if, if I'm with my family and a bad guy wants to hurt them, there's not any math that I need to satisfy in that moment. I don't need to stop and pray and ask God what <laughs> I'm supposed to do. I might pray right. extreme unction over that guy. Uh, I'm certain I won't enjoy it, but there's one course of action that's necessary then, and that's to protect my people. And so we see winners continuing to do what's necessary, but we also see him feeling the regret. And I think that spirit of lament is so Christ-like. God is a warrior. Mm. You know, we see several messianic prophecies about the master being a warrior. But there's 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 a lament in that because this isn't how it's supposed to be. So even if it's necessary, it's always lamentable. And I, I appreciate that so much because we have so many heroes that come in guns blazing and you know, they've got all the swagger and wreck all the shop. But it doesn't ever seem like there's anything remorseful in their doing the heroic things. And I think we see winners carrying a lot of remorse, even in killing the enemy. It's not a thing that he celebrates. It's hard to get excited about finishing a report, mm -hmm. <laughs> about completing an inventory. It's really easy to get excited about rescuing 140 British paratroopers mm -hmm. captured, trapped on the other side of the, the river. And the funny thing is like, like I felt that, you know, in the life that I've chosen of sort of whether it's doing the podcast or creating stuff or watching my grandson or taking care of the dogs or whatever, I have this desire of, I just want to do something that I'm excited to tell people about. Hmm. I had this awesome experience. You know, and I've, I'm sure I've told the story before of, you know, my wife's in this leadership program. So she went away for a retreat up to the mountains, which I love going to the mountains, but 
I had to stay here with, cause I was watching my grandson and taking care of the dogs. And she's like, Oh my gosh, this she's telling me about her day. And I'm like, I, I played Legos for like four hours <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard mm -hmm. and it's difficult because the, because you put so much pressure on all the things. Oh, I just wanted to this to happen. Or I was hoping this would happen. I just want a story that I can be excited to tell my friends about. Because they're like, oh, like I got friends starting new jobs and really walking in faith and trusting God in these things. I'm like, I want a cool story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want something to be excited about. Mm. It doesn't feel like the dark night of the soul, right? But I think it can lead to it. Like this episode will lead to really dark, freezing cold nights in Bastogne. And it prepares us if we let mm -hmm. it. And that's the important thing. We have to let it prepare us. We have to let it. And that's, again, going back to that concept, letting go. We have to let go of those expectations, those needs, those as, as Jesus said, put to death those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Joseph story, you know, Joseph, Prince of Egypt, not, not the father of the master, but golly, his whole formative experience was nothing but a cascade of disappointments and tragedies. And yet he does each one of them with indomitable integrity. And so it's no accident that he becomes the most powerful man on earth that feeds the entire world. I don't think God could have or would have promoted him to that position if he hadn't gotten through all the boring and all the tragic stuff with that level of faithfulness or without that level of faithfulness. Everything from being betrayed and sold to being enslaved to being wrongfully accused of little misbehaving with the mistress and then he's in prison and he's forgotten about there at every point he's continuing to become the kind of man that God can use in being a savior to the world. Got some resonance with the winner's narrative and all that. He suffers quite yeah. a lot, everything from boring to tragic and at every turn does it with faithfulness. And you see in that last clip, how he took the tedium and the boring and the invisibility. Mm -hmm. And it actually made him better equipped to take care of the men untrusted to his care. Yeah. Yeah. Like he became, uh, he became more able to meet their needs because of that invisible experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like your read on that because it wasn't a thing that he just endured and was like, all right, whew, done with that. He, he made it manifest for the men that he had to continue to lead. It was not just formative. It was an informative experience that he brought mm -hmm. before them. They didn't have to go through those hours. However long he was stuck in that house by himself. You know, we see one montage, right? But who knows weeks, months, however long that gauntlet was, he found a way of making it an ingot that he could pass on to the men that he was training up. So as we wrap this up, and we talk about the, the, the idea of, of suffering well, dealing with the loneliness, you know, which we don't, again, we don't, I enjoy the fact that this sort of is a pivot on where we've normally gone of this idea of ma band of brothers and battle and 
the camaraderie and the community of saying, hey, there's, there is a time that you're going to find yourself alone, but it is a false feeling, as you said. It's like you feel alone, but that's just like, I don't feel forgiven. Well, that doesn't mean you're not. Mm. Like there are certain things that are true regardless of our feelings. Our feelings are miserable bastards to follow. They're, they're untrustworthy. You can't <laughs> listen to them. <laughs> don't live your life based on your feelings. Willard's one-liner is that our feelings are good servants, but they are horrible masters. Mm. <laughs> yes. Don't be mastered by your, your feelings. Mm. And so we see Easy Company get to where they're going. And they get to Bastogne. And, and it's interesting because I think there's actually a new crossroads. The first crossroads were green, lush, had ditches. Mm. This current crossroads that where they end, they're nothing to burn. So they, they're, they dig out holes and fill it with gas to have fire because nothing will burn. There's no woods. There's no nothing. It's just dirt, snow, and gasoline. And there, as Easy Company gets out of the, the trucks, they see men leaving the front. Mm-hmm. And they are shell-shocked, I think, would, would be the appropriate term. They're just zombies, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they, but they see, hey, you have ammo. Give us your ammo because you're not using it. You're leaving the battle. Mm-hmm. You're leaving the fight. And it's super funny because Jimmy Fallon comes flying up in a Jeep. <laughs> As a as a lieutenant, <laughs> he's like, "Oh, I raided the I raided. There was an ammo dump, so I brought you guys ammo." And they're you know like locusts. But he says this this thing at the end that that I wanted to kind of close the audio, close our episode with this clip. It's the because it, he's like, "You're going in, and it's the Battle of the Bulge, right? You're about to be surrounded, and this is the whole Battle of Bastogne." And we'll talk about that next time with with Brian Bird. But the idea, like, um, Winner's response is, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. Mm -hmm. And so why does that, what does that, what does this scene say to you, Whaler? When you talk, when you think about weaving together all the themes that we've discussed, as they're entering what will be the, the, probably the most challenging, difficult, hardest battle that they're going to face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's another occasion where we see winners just face first into the fray that the reflex of his heart is to not be put off by that at all. I mean, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded as if he has consigned himself to unending peril and still doing his damnedest to meet it with courage and virtue at every point. That's a really good orientation to the world. Not the case that obviously we want people raining down fire on us all the time, but if it's going to be there, okay, I still know what kind of life it is. I'm supposed to lead in the face of it. And to do that as a reflex, because we've been so thoroughly trained and formed and being the kind of man that would naturally have that response, just jumping out of his heart. What it says is, I know who I am and I'm willing to fight the battles that are brought my way. Mm-hmm. 
but both can be true. Because I know who I am, I can fight the battle in front of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the solidity of that kind of character. I don't think that's the thing that you can choose to facsimile in the moment. That requires quite a lot of time and intensity developing it so that it's there when the occasion demands. Not to keep piling up stuff, but I was like, because in that response, in my conversation with my son last night, Mm. it's not built on research. (laughs) It's not built on, you know, looking at a book or talking to a friend. It's built on who I've become in those moments. Mm -hmm. And you, you brought up this quote, but uh, it was a quote about C.S. Lewis. And I think it definitely references winters in this situation. And they said, everything he believed was contained in anything he said. And I think that's what we're going to see here in this, in this clip. Mm-hmm. Whaler, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, look forward to seeing you again in a couple episodes mm-hmm. uh, about why we fight. And uh, so, yeah, we're just going to close with this clip. What's the situation? Well, I heard you guys are coming in. There was an ammo dump, so... Here. Is it just you guys in the 101st? Looks like. What hit you, fellas? Everything. The crowd's had tigers, panthers, SPs, Stukas. Artie and infantry just kept on coming. What's your name, Lieutenant? George Rice, 10th Armor. George, son. You got any more mortar rounds, sir? We're real short. Uh, I'll try to make another ammo run if I can, but uh, don't count on anything. Panzer Division is about to cut the road south. <laughs> Looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. We're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. Something inside has been awakened. I can no longer be who I was before. But if I am no longer who I was, who am I to be?